gentlemen. Uh... Can I please have your attention? Dear listeners, this is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Uh, today, we're very excited, uh, and I don't mean that just simply in the royal we, um, to have longtime fan favorite of this podcast, uh, heroic wonksplainer, um, and my colleague and author of the Capitalism uh, Newsletter. Uh, also some sort of lawyer, Cato scholar guy and all that kind of stuff. Um, Scott Lincecum, and he's got a new book out called Empowering the New American Worker, Market-Based Solutions for Today's Workforce. Now, normally I like to ask authors a simple question of what's your book about, but you kind of have it in the title. If I can throw you just a, a, a something out of left field really quick. Where do you come down on this whole werewolves versus vampires thing? Wow. Um, well, that's not covered in the book, uh-huh. uh, although uh, I There's imagine, sort of both vocations of a sort. Well, I was going to say, uh, yeah. they're workers and consumers too. So uh, I, I definitely vampire. Um, All right. So, yeah. so, so you can sit there in your wrongness and we can come back to that. So okay. um, that said, uh, why don't we just sort of start from the top? What's the book about? And why'd you write it? Or why'd you edit it? Because it's a bunch of different things, right? Yeah, let's start with why we put it together. um, And then I'll I'll tell you what it's about. Um, About, I don't know, a year and a half ago, um, I was involved in a series of debates on uh, how to help American workers and whether this was trade policy or other policy and the rest. And there always seemed to be this kind of stated assumption out there uh, that markets have really failed American workers, that, um, you know, we are living in this modern age where American workers just can't get by, that working families are struggling, and thus we need all sorts of government interventions, whether it is wage subsidies or child tax credits or mandated paid leave and family benefits, um, minimum wages, tariffs, you name it. It is always, okay, these are pro-worker policies, folks on the left, folks on the right. Um, and these are this is our panoply, this is our library of pro-worker policies. So this arose out, of course, as a libertarian, my frustration uh, probably obviously was at the fact that the assumption that markets have failed workers is pretty wrongheaded in the sense that, first, it ignores all of these policies we have out there right now that are hamstringing American workers in all sorts of ways, Um, you know, whether it's reducing their take home pay or real wages, whether it is uh, preventing them from moving from job to job or place to place, all these types of things. Um, There are tons of policies out there right now that are that are inhibiting kind of proper functioning of US labor markets. The second, just similarly, is that we have a lot of market-based free market policies that we could embrace to help uh, the vast majority of American workers. And, you know, no giant government program or rethink of capitalism is needed. In fact, these are more, um, they're wonky, but and more micro-level reforms that would help, again, the vast majority of the workforce. Workforce, And, you know, these are things like occupational licensing reform or, uh, you know, housing deregulation. Um, And you can go down the list and we'll get into that. 
but then the third thing that's real was really frustrating is that uh, folks in Washington really seem to misunderstand who the modern American worker really is. You know, there's this stereotype, right? Uh, the American worker is uh, a 50 year old sole breadwinner man in the Rust Belt who's working on an assembly line. Right. That's our, our work, American worker policy. Or it's some um, urbanite, uh, college educated, uh, you know, dual income family in Manhattan or wherever, you know. Um, and, and that's what all of our pro worker policies are targeting, ignoring really not only how uh, the workforce has radically changed during the pandemic, but also what American workers say they really want in terms of independence and mobility and autonomy and the rest. So, so out of that frustration grew this book. Um, I put together a roster of Cato scholars um, to come up with what we thought were a list of, say, well, now it's 17 different policy areas where um, that, that really push these themes that um, we look at, well, what are the policies that are hurting American workers in, uh, you know, criminal justice as an area of um, health care, child care, uh, I mentioned housing. Uh, you can really go down the list. I, I won't bore you with everything in there. And then, of course, things like private sector labor regulation and higher education. So where are the, where are the bodies buried? And then what are the market-based reforms that would really help? And not just help based on our good old Cato libertarian dogma, but, um, you know, it, are backed up by tons of academic research on these topics. I mean, we're talking, you know, uh, hundreds of footnotes in this bad boy uh, <laughs> that cite to the latest academic research from both sides of the aisle on a lot of these things. You know, this is not just a hardcore uh, libertarian right-winger type thing. You know, we are, we are really trying to dig into the weeds of the scholarship and say, look, here are some market-based reforms that have pretty universal acceptance out there out there um, that would really help most uh, most workers. Um, and then, so that's essentially the book, uh, to try to get into that. And then, like I said, to really try to focus more on what um, most American workers want and what, um, as opposed to what policymakers really think they should want. Yeah, and it's, uh, so it's... um. Just sort of level set just for a second, because some of this conversation kind of reminds me of uh, you're old enough to remember the the national elite freakout over Enron and not Ed, well, well Enron, but also the Calif. Remember when Gray Davis and they had the gray outs, the aptly named Gray Davis um, as governor of California, and everyone insisted Paul Krugman on down that it was all market failure. Yes, and when you actually looked at it, it was actually government failure, right? Because they yeah. had really stupid sort of regulations that distorted the market, sort of like rent control kind of you know distortions. And so I'm kind of curious, like, is there a place in this conversation where you can agree that there is any kind of market failure somewhere? And what would it be? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, and, I, and this I wrote in the conclusion to the book. Um, so, you know, certainly if you adopt all of these policies that we're promoting, uh, you're not going to have some sort of magical labor utopia. Uh, inevitably, there are going to be uh, weak spots and there are going to be problems. I mean, that's, that's life. Nobody can change that, right? Um, the problem we have right now is that I think it's really difficult to say, aha, that's a clear market failure, given the pervasive government failures that really exist at all levels of government with respect to worker-centric policies. I mean, how can you say, for example, so I'll, I'll give you a really simple example. Um, 
right before the pandemic, we had a really dramatic decline in uh, mobility. So people weren't moving from job to job. They weren't moving from place to place. Now, if you look at this and you go, aha, um, the market has failed. We need to maybe subsidize workers so that they can move uh, to a new place instead of living in these kind of dying towns or whatever. Um, but then when you dig into the weeds, you see that, in fact, um, we have a laundry list of policies, um, whether it is occupational licensing restrictions or housing regulations that create kind of an effective wall around our most productive cities because housing costs are just so expensive now. Um, or uh, I mentioned criminal justice policy. That's another one um, that, you know, when you have a record, uh, that can really deter people from getting a job, changing jobs, all that kind of stuff. So Also, welfare policy. I mean, Ron Bailey has written about this, right? It's like, it's very difficult if you're getting all your benefits in West Virginia, but you can get a job in North Carolina, you have to either abandon all the benefits, which would be a good thing, right? If you're getting, if you're making more money, but if it's at the bubble, then right. you might actually be losing money and you need to, to have your SSI transport or whatever. It's just very difficult. It's like those safety nets become webs in a lot of ways. Exactly. And so we go, you, you can go through a list and we welfare policy is a chapter. Um, and then even some more modern things like remote work. Um, I wrote the chapter on remote work. Um, we just have a bunch of antiquated laws on the books regarding the taxation of uh of workers' income and companies' income that's based on um, like the physical presence of the company. And that can discourage people from taking remote work jobs. So we have all these policies that, that inhibit physical and uh, occupational mobility. So how can we really say there's a market failure there when, when all of these distortions already exist? I mean, um, and so the, the, the recipe, I think, is start with fixing the policies that, again, are are really do well documented um, in inhibiting uh, mobility, independence, lowering real wages, you name it. And then we can get into um, uh, whether there are market failures out there. Um, you know, I'll give you another quick example. You know, right now, everybody loves child tax credits. And, you know, child tax credits really not like my, my <laughs> white whale. It's not like the Jones Act, right? Um, so, but... Uh, it does, as a free market guy, uh, rankle me a bit that we have um, childcare regulations that have been shown to sh have no real market benefit in terms of either lock uh, licensing, staff licensing requirements, staff to child ratio requirements. Uh, you go down the list um, that have been shown to increase the cost of childcare not by a few bucks, but by thousands and thousands of dollars. Right. Um, and yet the focus is on just giving parents more money to go spend in this supply restricted space on childcare or whatever, um, instead of reforming childcare regulation or reforming regulations on home-based businesses or uh, eliminating tariffs on food and clothing and footwear. You know, we have really high tariffs on children's shoes. Now, just makes no sense. So you add all this stuff up and you're talking about thousands and thousands of dollars that you could save for American families. Um, and yet in Washington, the debate is just simply about throwing more taxpayer dollars at this stuff, which of course creates its own distortions, its own political economy problems and the rest. And we don't, we just don't seem to want to do any of that hard work. So, I mean, I want to get back to examples of this stuff, but you know, it's, it seems to me that so much of this is 
driven sort of psychologically, culturally, emotionally by one of two things, either New Deal envy or Europe envy, right? And it's not the Europe that actually exists. It's the Europe that that progressives imagine exists. And this has been a problem for a very long time. In fact, the New Deal was an attempt to Europeanize the American economy. Um, you know, uh, William Luchtenberg writes a lot about that. And like, um, and so like, I, I'm always sort of struggling. As you know, I have, I am more vexed by the veer towards statism and left, left-wing economic policies by people who call themselves conservatives these days. I expect it from progressives, right? I mean, progressivism has been a cargo cult to the New Deal for most, nearly a century now. And like, that's who they are. That's, I'm, they're wrong, but I, I, it's Aesopian. I expect them to behave like that, right? Yes. If I find it to be a betrayal and a really bad sign when people who are allegedly Republicans and conservatives do it. And, and I keep, I keep hearing, like, every time I try to like take this stuff, these guys seriously, you keep hearing about how American workers are sliding behind and the American economy is falling behind and all this kind of stuff. And so I always, I, I look for, I don't know if it's purchasing power parity or median income, medium household income, uh, mean income, whatever it is. And with the exception of a handful of very small countries like Switzerland and Monaco and maybe Oman or whatever, um, America is just simply the richest country in the world, right? Including like our workers, our like our normal everyday citizens are better off. Now, obviously there's going to be some, you know, like apparently since Brexit, British construction workers are making more than American construction workers because they kicked out all the foreign workers, right? And so, um, but like, it's at times I kind of feel like, what country are these people talking about? I'm, I'm not saying we don't have problems. I'm not, and your book is very clear that there are things we could do to help people who are truly struggling. But like, the whole point of social science is to ask the question compared to what? Exactly. Right? And so like, what, what, where are we falling behind any kind of peer country where you think we could be doing better? Yeah, I think, I mean, I think the two, well, first, let me, let me add to your point really quickly. Um, as I note in the introduction, and then as Ryan Bourne notes in the chapter on labor regulation, um, for those who are looking for this kind of cradle to grave worker protection model that's European, um, I highly recommend you check out the studies that we cite. Um, in those chapters and recent evidence from the pandemic, because uh, uh, you know a bunch of very smart economists have looked at uh, lifetime earnings, labor productivity, all these types of things in these sclerotic European labor markets versus the U.S. labor market. And what they found is that uh, more fluid labor markets, less protected labor markets. That uh, sounds kind of scary, right? But it turns out that. Uh, overall, your your median worker is actually far better off in the long term in these fluid labor markets. And then during the pandemic, um, you know, uh, the Wall Street Journal had a great piece about six months ago, eight months ago now, um, looking at post-pandemic recoveries. And again, the fluid U.S. labor market was doing so much better than the European labor market. And this was before the Ukraine stuff, right? Um, and it was, again, because of the fluidity. 
uh, of the U.S. labor market. The U.S. labor market um, allows workers to move from job to job, from industry to industry, and that type of dynamism is incredibly important in general, but it's, of course, even more important when there's some sort of massive shock that um, changes uh, the nature of um, not just the U.S. economy, but the global economy. So, um, you know, you looked at, they looked at like temporary unemployment, um, wages and the rest. And again, the U.S. labor market for all its warts, um, how it's scary and unprotected was, was doing a lot better because it was able to recover and adjust more quickly. So that aside, um, I think our, the two areas that I would note um, and that we note in the book are education, both K-12 and higher ed, and um, healthcare. So, you know, in terms of education, we spend a fortune on K-12 education for absolutely stagnant returns. Um, our publication, public education model is just, you know, uh, it is a classic definition of a monopoly, right? Uh, in the sense that uh, it is offering a a mediocre product. It's not a terrible product, but it's a mediocre profit product for an increasingly big cost adjusted for inflation. Um, and it's even worse in certain places. I mean, DC spends like $30,000 per year per student um, and has some of the worst scores, you know, in the, in the country. So uh, K-12 education, the model is, uh, you know, based on, the, because it's a monopoly, uh, also, uh, you have a monopsony in terms of how we pay our teachers. Teacher pay is stagnant as well. This is all, again, I mean, it's exactly what you'd expect from a giant uh, monopoly in, in, in a critical market. Um, so, uh, of course, we, we look at reforms, things like educational savings accounts, let money follow students, not fund uh, broken systems, um, but also changing the focus a bit of education, K-12 education, to look more at uh, potential vocational opportunities, uh, to not just simply be a factory for getting a GPA to go to college, right? That's fine. I mean, I loved college. College worked great for me, but it's not for everybody. And particularly right now, there are a lot of great non-college opportunities out there. Um, you know, with the student loans and the cost of college, uh, there's plenty of reason why K-12 should be allowing students to find what, and parents to find what really fit, fits better for their kids. And the K-12 education system is just not that. It's just one size fits most and that's it, you know, you're, and you're going to just go through the system. So uh, that moves to higher ed. Higher ed's, you know, a lot of the same problems. You know, our higher ed system, we have fantastic research universities. We have a lot of really good things about the U.S. higher ed system. But at the same time, um, it is... Uh, extremely expensive, um, thanks to a panoply of federal loan, uh, sub federal subsidies and the rest. Um, it is very supply restricted. You know, there aren't a lot of innovative educational models out there. It's very kind of cookie cutter, four year anniversary, this kind of thing, or four year model, that kind of thing. Um, but, uh, you know, that's another, and then that ends up with people in debt who don't have actually a premium over their non-college peers, um, and they're kind of stuck in this, uh, you know, under-earning uh, uh, ditch um, because they just went to college like they were told to do, and now they're straddled with debt and the rest. Uh, and then, so that's, I think, education, there's a ton we could do, and there's a lot of innovative market-based reforms there. Um, healthcare, you know, the numbers on healthcare are just mind-boggling, um, and you've 
surely heard this elsewhere too. But if you look at the healthcare chapter, uh, Michael Cannon and Michael Singer are in, and um, Jeff Singer, excuse me, uh, really go through and look at first. We spend an absolute fortune on healthcare, uh, mainly because of a mistake in U.S. tax policy going back a century, right? The exclusion for employer-provided healthcare, and this creates all sorts of distortions in the market. Um, not only does it um, make healthcare very expensive because you have this kind of third-party payer model, you know, you basically don't have a choice in what health insurance you get because of both regulation and because your employer is in charge of dictating what kind of insurance is available. Um, but you're also tied to your worker. You know, there's this thing, or your, your employer, excuse me, there's a thing called job law, right? So we talked about mobility earlier. Well, one of the big uh inhibitors of occupational mobility is that um, if you quit your job or you want to go out on your own, you lose your health insurance. And that's a huge deal, particularly for parents, right? So um, we we pay, we spend way, way too much. Um, we tie workers to their employers. We uh, then on the, so that's on the demand side. So, so the, the big solution there is simply to get rid of the tax exclusion, uh, allow people to have, you know, health savings accounts, spend their money as they see fit on insurance or on direct cash for care. Um, there's a lot of demand side stuff we could do that would that would be useful. But then on the supply side, so we're subsidizing demand in all these bad ways, and we're doing all this bad stuff. But then on the supply side, you know, we have all of these, um, licensing restrictions on who can provide care, how they can provide care, uh, regulations inhibiting telemedicine, which were suspended during the pandemic, but have now mostly snapped back because of regulatory inertia. Um, we don't allow foreign doctors to practice here unless they like basically go back to med school again. So you end up with uh, people with great education and training, and they're like driving taxi cabs or um, running MRI machines, right? And and yet we have this, this uh, shortage of doctors right now. Um, and then we do all sorts of stuff to just increase the cost of medical goods and drugs and the rest. And it's all these supply side restrictions as well. Um, so we, again, there are market-based reforms. It's not just, you know, uh, mass deregulation and open borders, but there are really common sense reforms we could... Um, in, in implement, you know, allowing nurse practitioners to do a little more direct care, um, eliminating certificate of need laws, which um, essentially, uh, if you, as you may know, uh, block the uh, new market entrance in certain communities. Here in North Carolina, we have these stupid con laws, and they essentially create um, absolute medical uh, deserts because of all the regulation. Um, licensing rules and the rest. So we, there are all these types of things we could do to create a freer and more nimble healthcare market where I do think really we are falling behind. So true to your sunny disposition and, uh, and Cato membership card, <laughs> um, you've blamed a lot of this, almost everything on government regulations, but, I know that you have a greater grasp of, of cynicism oh, than, yes. than you're letting on so far. Like, so the, the education stuff, like I, I'm trying to put this in a way that doesn't feel like the same old gripe, right? But like, you know, there's this age-old critique of right-wing uh, cultural economic stuff as producerism, right? Right. And, um, and 
we don't have to get deep in the weeds on producerism, but the left has a producerism too. Sure. In the sense that the education stuff you're talking about for K through 12, a lot of that is for the benefit of the teachers, not the benefit of the kids, right? I'm not saying that that's all evil and all that kind of stuff, but as a, as a sort of a public choice, sort of the way the incentives and, and where the, where the rubber meets the road or where penalties are for this, that, or the other thing and where the barriers to entry are, basically the system is designed to protect teachers and teachers unions rather than help kids and parents. Similarly, occupational licensing stuff for doctors. And I, I do think like doctors, there's a higher, uh, de better defense for occupational licensing than in yes. a lot of other things. Yeah. Than like massage therapists. Sure. Right. Right. Or hair sure. braiding. Right. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, a lot of the problems that you're talking about could be solved by simply making immigrant doctors take a test. Yeah. Right. And Instead, what they do was sort of like well, other kinds of occupational licensing is the barrier to entry isn't the test. The barrier to entry is the required educational credits to be allowed to take the test, right? And so how much of this is not so much government regulation as it is, I mean, obviously government regulation is where this stuff gets, it's, it's, it's the point of what the Marxists would call praxis, right? But it's, it's, it's interest groups defend and guilds defending their turf um and uh and uh, anyone who has is basically uh, you know captain quinn to the great white shark of the jones act as you have been <laughs> um can see that there are human forces behind all of this yeah. and it is not just bureaucratic folly oh 100 percent no, I, and you know, this is something I write about in my newsletter a lot. In fact, I'm, I'm doing it again this week. Uh, stay tuned. But yeah, uh, certainly in a lot of cases, not all. You know, I think some is just historical vestiges of old regimes that right. due to a, a lack of courage or interest from government players, we've just kind of allowed the stuff to sit around. I mean, uh, the footwear tariffs, uh, if you, to get you a little riled up, we don't even have a cheap shoe industry in the United States. We haven't had a cheap shoe industry in the United States for ages, uh, despite all of these very high tariffs. And yet we tax every shoe that comes in the country um, uh, at a very high level, which is, again, it's just a kid tax, right? Right. And, and the point you're making is that normally a tariff, even though you're against them, is to protect an indigenous industry. We don't have an indigenous industry to protect. Correct. It is just there. Right. Now you can say, okay, well, there are some shoe companies that actually do want that tariff for other reasons. But the reality is that there's not like a massive lobby protecting these little shoe tariffs. It's just, it's been there since Smoot Hawley. Nobody wants to really get into it. It's why make the effort? Politicians are punished for action, not inaction. We saw this during the pandemic all the time, right? Um, with, with FDA approvals of things like rapid tests. So, um, so some of it, I think, is just uh, uh, bad government inertia, right? But you're right. Uh, the big um, unstated villain in a lot of this is the interest group politics, right? The uh, sclerosis that infects a lot of the U.S. economy because you uh, these systems deliver intentionally or not very concentrated benefits uh, to a 
small group of somewhat politically influential people. Um, and it costs all of us a little bit. Right. Not a not a, you know, going back to the footwear tariffs. I mean, you know, a couple bucks here and there, not the end of the world. Um, if there were an industry to benefit from that, uh, that'd be a big benefit. Um, right. As classic in, in trade, but it's all all over the, the economy. Um, and licensing is another, you know, obvious example. So uh, breaking that logjam is incredibly difficult. Uh, because the folks that benefit the most, um, maybe it's the ethanol producers in Iowa, though maybe now with the primaries mm-hmm. moving, we're going to have a chance. Um, it, they are going to fight like hell to keep those rents in place. And the rest of us aren't going to care much. Um, and so that is the age-old dilemma. And I think that, you know, it is uh, my sunny disposition uh, notwithstanding. Um, I I totally acknowledge the uphill climb there is. But I also think it's critically, critically important that we have that conversation, right? That we not basically just throw up our arms and say, aha, markets have failed workers. This is a condemnation of, of the free market, of the U.S. labor market, of our, of our more fluid system. And thus, we just need to throw more money at it or we need more tariffs or the rest. Um, if we're at least acknowledging the government failure, then I think we're we're... And we're starting down the right road. Because if you don't acknowledge it, then you end up with just more distortions. You're just layering another um, distortion on top of distortion. And fortunately, the good old laboratories of democracy in the states are, in fact, recognizing some of these problems and are defeating some of these uh, political dynamics. You know, Arizona, for example, adopted uh, universal licensing recognition, which is the biggest no-brainer on the planet. Essentially, it says, look, if you're licensed anywhere in the country and you come to live in Arizona, your license is effectively good here, Mm -hmm. with a few exceptions. Um, Or uh, Pennsylvania, um, enacted a, a really very common sense proposal for expunging criminal records of nonviolent crimes after a set period of time in order to, you know, let people get back to work um, and not have a criminal record effectively drag them down for their entire lives. Um, you know, criminal justice chapter in this book I wrote, um, studies showed that it affects, uh, it depresses labor market participation by um, not just a few thousand workers, but by more than a million workers, it's estimated. Um, are out of the labor market or marginally attached to the labor market because they have some sort of criminal record. Now, we're not going to expunge every single criminal record out there, but uh, certainly nonviolent crimes, crimes that aren't even crimes anymore, like marijuana possession, uh, this should just be automatically removed and allow, uh, again, the, the people to get back into the into the system instead of, you know, committing more crimes or, or whatever. Um, so, so again, Pennsylvania's done this, some other states, Colorado has, has done some of this stuff. So the states are moving. Um, you know, California, for all its warts, has done some pretty good stuff on housing deregulation recently. Um, and it's, I think that's where our best bets are in, um, defeating a lot of these, uh, dynamics. So, uh, I don't know if you mentioned in the book, I'm sure you know this, but like, I just think it's such a perfect illustration of almost the entire life cycle of what you're talking about is that in the 20th century, there was not a single commodity or other good of any kind that appreciated it in value more than the New York City taxicab medallion. Yeah. More than, it, it, it beat gold, it beat platinum, 
Um, it beat unobtainium. It beat everything, right? It just was just like a like thirty six thousand dollar increase, and it was because they set the number of taxicab medallions at a fixed number in like nineteen thirty seven, and more or less did not increase the number as the population of the city increased, the wealth of the city increased, and blah 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 blah. And the argument that the taxi people made is you can't add more taxis now because these, particularly these immigrants, they made these huge investments. They took right. out loans and the value of these things, even though a lot of them were sort of uh, 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 bought by, by taxi cab, you know, medallion barons like Michael Cohen. <laughs> Investors, yeah. And then along comes Uber. And all of a sudden, like uh, the ability to transport yourself around the city it becomes easier, becomes it becomes safer. Um, and I don't know what it did to the median, like the median cab owner. I mean, the typical cab owner who owned the medallion, they got screwed. Right. Right. But like um, the average cab driver who had to rent the cab or the average uh, passenger, they benefited enormously. Right. Right. And that seems to me sort of metaphorically or um, yes, you know, as an analogy is sort of the kind of dynamic you're talking about all around is some of the market-based reforms will create losers, but the number of winners will be much greater. Massive. And the losers will win too. Um, that's the other thing that is often unstated by this. You know, yeah, again, you hear it in things like ethanol. Oh, you'd hurt the, the farmers. The fact is though, that uh, these market-based reforms would it help a lot of the quote losers too. Now, mm -hmm. uh, it would do it in sort of hidden ways, you know, again, uh, whether they save money on childcare or they uh, have a better access to essential goods or they save on fuel costs or whatever, uh, you can go down the list, right? But they, they're, these market-based reforms would benefit them too. But yes, you know, when you have, when government is dishing out rents and it, stops, inevitably, the rent seekers uh, and uh, beneficiaries are going to suffer a bit. Now, that doesn't mean, though, that you shouldn't uh, change the system, particularly where the harms of the current system are so pervasive. Right. You know, um, yes, child care staffed uh, to child ratio regulations and licensing requirements undoubtedly boost uh, the incomes of a few uh, lucky child care workers, although not really by that much, but a little bit. But is, is it worth costing American families uh, thousands and thousands of dollars every year, um, thus necessitating uh, all sorts of crazy government demands for state provided child care or child care subsidies or the rest, which of course are just going to make the problem worse. So, you know, you have to uh, consider the systemic uh, benefits beyond simply the consumer benefits, you know, having a better functioning uh, U.S. economy and U.S. labor market. Now that said, um, you know, the, the classic solution to the problem of removing uh, the rent providing apparatus is just to pay the people off, right? So, or provide an effective transition period that allows for individuals to, to move to something else. Um, and, and, you know, I'm not entirely opposed to that type of solution, too. I mean, if it can get you to a better place, um, that's uh, a very common um, government move, right? Okay, this system doesn't is causing huge problems. Um, we're not going to eliminate it overnight, but we are going to eliminate it in five years. Um, you know, with going back to trade policy, for example, trade agreements 
zero out some tariffs immediately, but the most politically sensitive ones are phased out over like a 10-year period, right? Um, and so those types of compromises are, you know, in our real world, totally uh, worth exploring as well, um, if it does get us to a better place overall. So let's argue about uh, remote work a little bit. Um, yeah, okay. which I've been doing at least as much as you've been doing for as long as you've been doing it. Um, and I, I look, I, I look, I, I, it works for me for the most yeah. part. Although after, uh, my first 10 years of doing it, I was desperate to go amongst the humans again. And, um, yeah. um, and that's why one of the reasons I'm so grateful to going back to AI, cause I just needed the ability to walk down the hall and pick someone's brain and that kind of thing. Um, but you are an, unabashed evangelist for, for, for yes. all of this. And yeah. And while I, I may agree with you that like some of the laws that certainly some of them, I'll back up. When I listen to you talk about all the kind of stuff, it, 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 I think the place, the, the, the place where our views entirely overlap is basically that the government should take the Hippocratic oath and like first do no harm. Do not like make the country economically less efficient, do not make the country, do not trap people or harm people or harm businesses based upon some goofy theory, right? So like there are places where it makes it much harder to, to remote work. I'm probably sympathetic to all that. I think though that the idea that remote work is a boon for everybody is misplaced. Um, it was oversold for a while and I understand why it was, but now I think um, your jingoism for it is, uh, is out of touch with all sorts of things like the new, um, you know, concern about the epidemic of loneliness in this country. So make your yeah. case and then we'll argue about it. Okay. Um, well, let's actually start with the loneliness first. Um, I acknowledge the loneliness issue, but I think a lot of that is a vestige of the old going into the office system. I mean, I don't think that People necessarily wanted to become best buddies with their coworkers. It's just that that's what happened because they were kind of forced into that environment. And you know, you you go to happy hour because you can't deal with the commute on the. You're going to wait for the commute to die down, right? Um, so okay, I'm going to wait a little bit. I'm just going to hang out with Bob. Bob's fine, but but that's the thing. And certainly, um, there are other outlets that aren't work that can provide individuals with, um, you know, a social interaction. I'm, I'm not a hermit, you know, I'm actually, I'm going to my daughter's Christmas concert tonight and we'll put on some nice clothes and rub elbows with some people I like, not, not all. Uh, and you know, there are plenty of, you know, church, civil organizations, you name it. Um, there are, uh, are other alternatives out there. Um, I'm again, you know, very social with my neighbors and the rest. I go out for a walk every day to make sure that I have human interaction. Um, so, so I think that's the first thing is that some of the loneliness stuff that's happening because we're not in our workplace anymore. It's kind of a vestige of that traditional nine to five office culture, right? That said, um, I agree with you that work, remote work isn't for everyone. Um, and I hope in the book that we're not saying everybody should become a remote worker. I hope it didn't come off like that. I mean, because what, what really the, the chapter, which I wrote the remote work chapter, unsurprisingly, um, is that look, remote work is, uh, 
cool. A lot of people want it, not all. It has a lot of benefits for a lot of people, not all. And governments should be neutral with respect to remote work, right? Because right now, government is not neutral with respect to remote work. Um, whether it is tax policy, particularly tax policy, or licensing policy, um, or restrictions on like independent and gig work and all these other things. We do a lot of things right now that simply prevent individuals from working remotely if they want to. Um, and oh, by the way, remote work so far has been shown to have some broader societal benefits in terms of productivity and happiness for those who, again, want to do it. Um, now, that doesn't also say that I think the traditional office is going to disappear. I think it's going to, it'll change, even in a kind of remote work environment. You know, people are still going to go into the office occasionally. I'm heading up to DC tomorrow to go into the office. Uh, and that he, that face-to-face -face interaction is valuable. Um, but it doesn't mean that I also can't work from home most of the time, avoid that crippling commute, put my daughter to bed every night, um, all of those wonderful things that particularly when I was a overworked lawyer could never do, um, but was allowed to do as a remote worker. That's what we should um, be allowing people to do. But if people want to be um, you know, want to go into the office and put on a tie every day, that strikes me as insane. But if you want to do that, I, you know, I also think that we should have those options too. Um, offices will need to adapt um, and, uh, you know, to allow for that. But it's, it's certainly not out of the question. Um, it's just, again, what we want for government policy is not to have the thumb on the scale as it does now against remote work. Yeah, no, look, I, I basically agree with all that. I'm just trying to pick a fight. But um, <laughs> that said, um, look, I think, you know, in that that gauzy, mystical realm that is often invisible to many a Cato scholar called civil society and the rest of the world. And like, all <laughs> I, I know I'm just picking a fight. Take it easy. People can't see he's taking great offense at that characterization. Um, no, look, I, I think that I think the COVID messed up a lot of people. Yeah, there are now a lot of and COVID plus a bunch of uh, educational nonsense, trigger warning kind of garbage, right? Um, that a lot of and also just the rise of people addicted to their phones, right? So it's a lot of things right. and all that kind of stuff. I see it that the ability of younger people to socially engage with their peers, with their colleagues, with um, the other humans is um is deeply impaired <laughs> and um again gross generalization sure. or you know all that kind of stuff but i i think that the you know it took me a long time to understand that it's almost it's virtually never a good idea to make a decision based on fear you should always listen to your fear because sometimes your fear is telling you something very important, like sharks are scary, right? Um, but if you're just, if you're solely going based on fear, you're going to make a lot of mistakes in life. And I think that there are a lot of people, particularly younger people, who are scared of social interaction. And so they make decisions about how to have a more fulfilling life. This is a little bit like what Russ Roberts talks about in his book is it's scary, the idea of having kids, right? So you just don't. But as you will attest, having kids is a really good idea. Yeah, it's awesome. And, um, and and engaging life in ways and engaging other people in ways that seem scary at first, but are actually really rewarding is important. And I fear that 
remote working alongside these other trends um, is something that a lot of people, a lot of young people are embracing because they'd rather hide with headphones on in front of a screen than actually engage in social interaction. I'm not saying the government needs a department of social interaction. I'm just saying that this is a downside that is part of the culture that the economic world is maybe exacerbating. Yeah. Now, now, I'll, leaving aside kind of our history, very long history of technology-induced moral panics, we'll leave that aside, right? Um, I agree with you that I think that there are legitimate concerns about some of these interactions. Uh, I just don't know how much of that is the technology's fault and how much of it is the, the culture's fault. And I'll give you a very simple example. And it could be um, both, right? I mean, they, right. one can catalyze the other. Yes, that's that's true. But I'll, I'll give you an you know, example uh, again using my my poor daughter as the as the example. Uh, I, she and I go out to dinner every once in a while, just us to kind of you know connect, right? Um, and we were out to dinner, and there was a, a table of teenagers uh, sitting next to us, and they did not speak. They were just staring at their phones the whole time, uh, which was hilarious. Let's go out to dinner to stare at our phones. I, I'm a pretty common thing, I think you you see, um, and. My daughter looked at that like they were all aliens, right? Like these are, are loony lunatics. So how much of that is the smartphone's fault and how much of that is, you know, the parents and the culture in which um, that's driving this? Because I think that, you know, as parents, we have responsibilities uh, to uh, teach our kids, right? That look, staring at your phone all the time is probably not a good thing that you need to be involved in, in other things uh, as well. And so um, that's, I, again, I don't think that's really the smartphone's fault. The smart, like you said, the smartphone just kind of the, the, the um, it, it effectuates the, the issue. We are avoiding rank punditry in everywhere, but um, <laughs> one of, I got, I'm going to go give a, have a speaking event with the uh, Illinois um, Policy Institute this week we're talking about Chicago and I've been thinking about this stuff. And, and one of the things that just drives me crazy is to the minimal extent, I still care about the Republican party. Um, but the Republican party, like it or not, is the vessel by which is still the best vessel by which we can maybe get free market reforms into the conversation. Um, I wish that weren't so, but the tendency of, of, of conservatives and the right to write off cities, yeah. Is one of the symbol, I mean, like, wh- wh- why do you rob banks? Because that's where the money is, right? right? Why should you care about cities? Because that's where the votes are, right? And um, the, the, the amount of low-hanging fruit in terms of public policy that um, could improve people's lives and make conservatism a more viable or, or libertarianism you know, or just simply non-progressive state down, you know, bottom down, top down, state driven, you know, public policy is just enormous. And, 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 and progressives should care. I mean, I know there are some who are starting to get this, but like the single greatest engine for turning poor immigrants into middle-class Americans was cities. You know, people always think like, oh, all these poor people, they lived in cities and the squalor was terrible. Yeah, the squalor was terrible and all that kind of stuff. But they always leave out the fact that the poor people moved there. Yeah, right. Because they, right. Like, that's where they could get a good job. It used to be yeah. that the poor neighborhoods and cities, which, again, pretty crappy. But that's where my people come from, or at least on my dad's side. Um, but that was the, you wanted to be there because that's where the jobs were. 
that was where the ladder was, right? That was the, the ladder went into the mud and the mud is where, and where the mud was in the city and that's where you climbed out of it. And that's been lost. And so like, what are the, what is like, if, if you could be czar of, a, of Philadelphia, let's say, let's not make it New York centric. Like, um, what would you do to, you know, help poor people in a free market way in a city? Yeah, number one thing is housing, uh, massive housing deregulation. Um, the the literature on housing regulation, so zoning, land use regulation, you know, all these rules and requirements that, you know, your building can only be a certain height. You can well, have to build so X feet from the sidewalk. You have to have the minimum number of parking spots, all of that stuff, not to mention the kind of classic zoning where you can only build single family homes in an, in an area, right, um, has shown to be an absolutely enormous tax on uh, housing. Um, and thus, you know, you tax something, you get less of it. And the studies also showed that our thriving areas, you know, like you said, mobility to thriving areas, and it doesn't have to be super cities. You know, I live in Raleigh. Raleigh's going through a lot of this now, too. Um, the study showed that it effectively creates a giant wall around the city. Um, because people who want to move to these places for jobs, for opportunities, for all those agglomeration effects that uh, wonks like to talk about in terms of people to working with other people, all that kind of stuff, um, those are blocked for a lot of people because of the high cost of housing and the big driver, again, is land use regulation. So if I'm king for a day, I'm, I'm going pretty radical on land use deregulation. Um, no, that doesn't mean uh, that we need to have 40-story buildings right next door to single-family homes. But it does mean a lot uh, of fewer rules regarding what people can build and where. Um, you know, the the... The real frustrating thing about this, of course, there's this whole NIMBY movement that doesn't want to build or develop anything, is the debate right now is just on like building duplexes where single family homes are just a couple miles from the center of a city. Um, and again, this is happening in Raleigh right now, um, much to my chagrin. Um, and that is that type of density restriction just simply raises the price of housing and it does it along major transit corridors. So poor people can't live in these places. They can't even travel to uh, where they need to go for, for work. Because as much as I wish everybody were working remotely, no, people still work in person. They still need this type of stuff and they can't move there. So um, the studies show that this is not merely a harm for lower class, middle class people, right? Not only does it deny them a better quality of life and better living standards, but it also has massive impacts on just national uh, production and gross to GDP, right? I mean, like multiple percentage points. So we're talking billions and billions of dollars of lost uh, production and efficiency and innovation and all this stuff because we have these giant walls around our most productive places. So I'm, I'm deregulating housing. Uh, and then the other thing is transportation. Um, we, uh, and we have a chapter in the book on transportation. Um, and it does mention the Jones Act, but it's not merely the Jones Act. We do all of this stuff um, to effectively uh, delay and uh, maybe even scuttle uh, the construction and provision of basic infrastructure. So roads, bridges, subways, you name it. 
right? Um, and that's just a cavalcade of idiotic rules um, by American restrictions on transit buses, right? So we can't have good, efficient transit buses. We have junky ones. Uh, the National Environmental Policy Act, this giant regulation that, hey, even liberals now recognize is an absolute disaster for building uh, basic infrastructure and other things like, you know, renewable energy facilities. So we do all of this stuff to transportation policy that, well, it again denies people a, a denies workers um, a, the ability to have kind of, you know, a, a good working life. Um, they, they, if, if they want to go live in the exurbs, great, but you know, unfortunately they can't get into the office downtown when they need to, because the roads all suck. And so, you know, I think there's a ton we could do on transportation policy as well that would benefit, um, not just workers, not just commuters, but the economy more broadly and get things kind of moving uh, again. And, you know, I think I would note, you know, a lot of uh, yimbies, we call it, so yes in my backyard people, are like really eagerly pro-density. In typical libertarian fashion, I'm not, you know, everybody has to live downtown in a shoebox apartment. Um, no, I mean, if you want to have a yard, and I mean, I have a big garden outside, I, that's great. Um, but again, policy should... But you're a UVA oh, guy, so you're kind of like the Jeffersonian yeoman farmer kind of libertarian. Exactly, yeah. exactly, right. I, um, I mean, I, you know, I have to... Uh, produce something other than words, right, Jonah? Right. I mean, come on. Right. Uh, so, but, you know, more neutrality and more flexibility and and uh, in policy is a good thing. And right now, uh, we just don't do that. You know, we we have a bunch of policymakers that look five years down the road. They read maybe they read some stuff and they go, "Aha! Everybody's going to live in cities." So now let's do stuff to make everybody live in cities. And then all of a sudden, COVID hits and nobody wants to live in cities. They want to live in the suburbs. And policy's like, you know, has this kind of oh crap moment, right? Where well, now we can't really do that. There's we don't have the uh, the systems in place. When I, you know, I think the best thing to do is just simply have a system that is pretty neutral and uh, allows for more rapid adjustment when whatever happens happens. So it's funny, like uh, just to tie this to the remote work thing. Um, my colleague Ryan Streeter at AI, he did these pretty massive, huge surveys where they try to figure out what made people actually happy where they lived, and there's a huge benefit to having a good, safe playground walking distance from your home, right? And like anyone who's had a little kid can understand this immediately, right? Because you got to go there all the time. It's how you get out of the house. It's how you like let the, you know, not to not to be too gendered in this, but like if you're going to give mom a break, dad's got to take the kid out of the house somewhere, right? And yeah, they got to get their wiggles out. And like, it seems to me that that one of the things that you could do that would fix that would ameliorate some of the, the alienation and anomy stuff that comes with remote working, which I do think is real. Um, um, that would also fix, would also bribe some people to be YIMBYs. It's just a lot of those kinds of government funded, right? Um, resources in major urban areas. And, you know, it would require some non-stupid law enforcement, you know, functions as well. But like uh, my friend, uh, Tim Carney, you know, uh, he was so moved by the, the literature on, on, um, on the role of mediating institutions in civil society that um, 
he started a T-ball league and, <laughs> um, and he figured out that the only way he was going to get buy-in from parents was that he would bring a keg like every game, whatever. And it's like, now it's like an indispensable linchpin, or at least it was last time I talked to him about it. Yeah. And figuring out ways to, to enrich the ecosystem of urban living in ways that maybe get a little cross income, you know, camaraderie kind of thing. Yeah. Like one of the most democratic thing I do regularly is hang out in the cigar shop, right? Small D democratic. And before that it was to hang out in the dog park in Adams Morgan. Um, right. You just meet a different cross section of people and you have different conversations and it feels like sort of civil society. And it seems like there are things like that that don't involve sopping some public sector union or, um, or locking people into certain specific policies or careers or whatever that are just sort of true public goods that right. the government could think more seriously about. Yeah. And, um, you know, being libertarian, I would... I know you're nervous about this. <laughs> no, no. And look, you know, I mean, the, in the, it's in the hierarchy of, of good and evil, right? I mean, it's public parks are not high on my list of uh, libertarian problems, mm -hmm. right? Um, and to the extent that, uh, you know, people need to be bought off with green spaces, um, I mean, that's a, a pretty tiny uh, cost, right? Now, I would argue uh, that I think uh, private provision of those spaces. You know, you can have a public land managed by private entities, that kind of stuff. There's ways to do this. And you can do that again with infrastructure as well. There's a lot of great privately managed public infrastructure, right? Sorry, I just did air quotes there for those who can't see. Um, so, you know, certainly there are compromises that can be made to uh, get things moving. And that goes back to the bigger point, you know, and, and I hope that's one of the points of that people take from this book. Um, these are not merely, uh, you know, abolish the Department of Education libertarian uh, suggestions and recommendations. I mean, there are pragmatic solutions to real world problems. And uh, when the political sausage gets made, if, if that requires, you know, some sort of transition period or public green space to get these things done. Oh, well, I mean, we've, we've, we've gone light years right. of advancement with a tiny step backwards. Sounds great to me. All right, so let me, let me push back in terms of it being not nearly so cynical as, as public sector, as, as bribery. Um, I am still more of a Burkean than a libertarian, right? I'm I like Herbert Spencer, but I'm a Burke guy. And, um, uh, and I've used this analogy before. I'm kind of obsessed with um, artificial reefs. Uh, and it turns out that like, if you knock an oil derrick down in the Gulf of Mexico, or if you throw enough piles of cinder blocks into the, you know, waters off of Florida in time, nature will grab around little things will start growing in it. And then other things will come and then bigger things that come to eat the little things come. And very quickly you get huge new fisheries, um, in some of these things. And the, the science on this is, is pretty established. And, um, to me, that is more akin to the sort of Burkean English garden view of government that like um, basic scientific research. I agree that the private sector can do it, but there's no downside to me if structured correctly um, and it can be structured incorrectly, but like uh, grants to universities to do basic fundamental research and worry about the patents and all that kind of thing because you want the right incentives. Um, but building it's not so much that the government has to build the infrastructure, right? Government doesn't build the F-16s that it buys. 
but it creates programs and it creates the systems by which those things are built. And I think that those kinds of things that have, that have true roles as public goods, they do not offend me in, um, uh, in that the, the, I mean, yes, big jungle gym construction firms may benefit from all of this, but like, that's not a big deal. And the public good benefits that come from it are much greater. That's sort of where philosophically I come from on this. Yeah, no, and and look, you know, I think that to continue your reef analogy, uh, I think where we can all agree is that right now, the government isn't building artificial reefs. They're actually building giant walls around the area where you might have a reef mm -hmm. that prevents, you know, anything from flourishing there. Uh, so, uh, you know, when you get to, well, you know, de provision of defense-related goods or whatever, um, you know, that's, I think, one of those things where we're, we've, we've won the war. If you and I are debating uh, defense spending or whatever in terms of, or, or basic research for R&D, um, then we've, and we've accomplished everything we agree on, then, you know, I'm not going to really be too mad about that. I mean, surely we can have some debates on it. But I think the, the problem we have right now is that it's really impossible for us to tell where government does need to step in and where it doesn't, where mm -hmm. those reefs need to be built and where they don't, where, you know, you can actually just have natural flourishing without any sort of government intervention. Because let's face it, even a Burkean, you can admit uh, that, you know, that's going to come with a lot of potential costs, you know, say, ah, we'll do basic research, right. But let's face it, um, when politics starts happening, bad stuff mm -hmm. can mm -hmm. happen with it. So we want to avoid those types of distortions and problems if we can. Mm -hmm. So let's start with where we agree. And then we can focus on where, no, you know what, government is necessary. Because, you know, again, like uh, defense procurement is a pretty obvious and proper role of the federal government, right? The, nobody, we're not going to have private tanks and, and F-35s, right? So um, then we just talk about, well, how to structure that to, to minimize the, the political problems, minimize those political economy things that always come up, right? Um, but that's, a again, light years away from sure. where we are when we're talking about good policy. Um, it's, you know, so uh, this book is trying to get what's the somewhat low-hanging fruit. It's not low-hanging fruit politically, but where I think we can hopefully all agree, or most of us can agree, right and left, because there's a lot of stuff in there for, I think, left-leaning folks to, to like, too. Um, and, and then once we, let's, once we can agree on that, then, okay, we can, we can have bitter fights over uh, basic funding for R&D. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I'm not, I, 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 my point about, the, part of my point about the, the reef thing is that it doesn't have to be cleverly built. It's just a big hunk of metal that you leave alone. And let, you know, the ecosystem do all the work, like the natural forces do all the work. And so maybe the, maybe the scientific research thing is a bad example. But like highways and bridges, again, the most efficient way to get them done without the red tape and all that is one thing. But like, those are things that, like, my basic orientation is, is that I will listen, sort of, it's a similar point to the one you just made. I'll listen to Democrats and progressives talking about fundamentally transforming the country with all these grandiose things when they can first prove that they can do the things that government is for, like, yeah. you know, making sure people are safe, uh, making sure that, you know, uh, you know, that, that garbage is collected. They don't have to collect it. They just got to make sure it's collected. Right. Um, the basic sort of balls and strikes kind of stuff. 
Um, and if they can't do that, why should I listen to them about like creating a kingdom of heaven on earth? Yeah, exactly. Well, and, and look, you know, we have a great example, I think, of what is good minimalist policy um, from the pandemic. You know, the, the Pfizer vaccine um, was basically just government procurement and deregulation. So effectively, Operation Warp Speed, for Pfizer at least, just kind of said, bring us a vaccine, get it approved by the FDA, and we'll buy it. Um, the contract literally said, we will not micromanage your supply chains. We will not say you have to make it in America or whatever. Use your existing knowledge and know-how. We will not touch anything else. We'll just buy it if you get it approved. And oh, by the way, we're going to streamline a bunch of uh, rules and regulations that used to gum up the works in terms of you know when you can uh, start producing and all that kind of jazz, right? So look, government's involved. Government's buying these vaccines. Um, and maybe, you know, you can make an argument that maybe it would have been better if Pfizer just went out there on the open market and did it. But that's, again, if we can get to a model that is just that kind of basic funding procurement model for, again, things like research things, a good example, you know, prizes for novel developments or, um, you know, bring it to us and we'll buy it uh, is um, a infinite improvement from where we are right now um, in terms of things like infrastructure policy and the rest, where uh, whether it's Buy American or Davis-Bacon or NEPA or the Jones Act, I mean, you can go down the list of how we just totally bollocks up our transportation policy to the point that um, we, you, you know, you mentioned Europe earlier, we stink compared to just even Europe. We don't have to talk about China or Singapore or anything like that. We stink in terms of building stuff um, because of all of these problems that are already in place that come from government trying to micromanage policy and, of course, delivering rents to very specific constituent groups. Yeah, I mean, like on the prizes thing, it is a no-brainer. Pennies on the dollar over any 10, 20-year period, you know, uh, fractions of pennies on the dollar. If you could give out a prize to cure Alzheimer's and Alzheimer's-related or like things, the amount of money we spend is hundreds of billions of dollars a year just on that those kinds of ailments. And it's also a source of massive human misery and heartache and financial, you know, financial deprivation. And just like a longitude prize for fixing that alone would be great, you know? And then like, a, like that's something that would not upset me in the slightest if my tax dollars went to, right? Um, yeah, I mean, if I'm if I'm getting mad about government prizes for stuff, um, I'm basically out of a job, right? I'm I'm <laughs> I'm coasted into retirement, living on my seastead because there's simply no. I mean, there's so we are so far from that in so many areas of yeah. policy, and particularly labor policy. Uh, it's just a uh, a cavalcade of bad regulation and law after bad regulation and law. So I just uh, it's not punditry, but it is in the news. What's your take? I have not followed it super closely. Um, I, I did laugh when I, I think it was Motherboard had this piece that said 50 labor historians said that Joe Biden screwed up the railway thing. And like, again, I'm open to arguments that Biden screwed up the railway thing. But the idea that labor historians are this, yeah. like, they're all like totally dispassionate because like what there's no conservative who goes into uh, becomes a professional labor historian and there may be one or two, let's admit it, a little eccentric libertarians who probably go into labor history stuff, but like it is, you were, you were, you were announcing what you are anyway. So like, what'd you make of the whole thing? 
Uh, well, I found it kind of funny, quite frankly. Um, first, uh, another shout out to the newsletter. Totally predicted this would happen in July. Uh, wrote about it back then. As you could see this coming on the horizon. Uh, and the reason I thought it was funny is that, remember, the president declared total victory when he brokered uh, this deal that hadn't been ratified by anybody. Um, but no, I think that th this is a weird one in uh, two ways. One is that the law is very specific to uh, the rail industry uh, because the rail industry was deemed essential to the national security a long time ago. So the government has a very specific role in rail labor negotiations that it doesn't have in, for example, the West Coast port negotiations, which are also a complete mess. Um, so there's a statutory role for the government to get involved. The government, the Biden administration basically did give or take what the law said, which was, you know, you appoint a mediator, the mediator tries to come to an agreement, the agreement is then, you know, uh, ratified or not. And if the agreement isn't ratified or not, then Congress can step in. And that's basically what happened. So uh, it strikes me that uh, the system kind of worked as it was supposed to, as much as I don't really want the government involved in all of this. Um, it's this is kind of law of the horse in the sense that it's a pretty unique situation. Um, but that being said, the other funny thing is that I do find it interesting and telling that when push comes to shove, our very protectionist Congress does draw the line at actually collapsing our global supply chains. <laughs> um, I mean, this was an overwhelming vote in both chambers, right? Uh, tariffs on, you know what, we're going to tax steel a little bit. That's okay. Buy American rules, we're going to take a little cut. That's cool. Oh, whoa, whoa. Actually collapsing the supply chain? Nah, nah, we're okay. We're going we're gonna to step in, right? Uh, and so, then uh, because that's really what was at stake. You know, a rail strike... Thanks to, uh, again, some of our very dumb transportation policy, uh, a huge chunk of our freight travels by rail. So a rail strike would have had really massive implications for the U.S. economy and the global economy. So I, it didn't seem like Congress had much of a choice but to follow the law and and basically do it. Okay, so... Um I, I can actually do more of this. Um, I, uh, but um, I got another podcast I got to record. And, um, and I'm sorry, we were supposed to do this in person, which would have been more fun. And it would have been easier to get into a big fight about the, uh, uh, the werewolf vampire issue, which I'm thinking about writing about. Um, but the book, hold on. The book is Empowering the New American Worker, Market-Based Solutions for Today's workforce, stocking stuffer, bring it to the beach. Um, highly recommend it. Uh, Scott Linscombe, thank you so much for coming back on. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Okay. So Scott Linscombe has left the studio. Um, I'm about to record another podcast, so I'll keep this short. Um, it's always great to talk to Scott. I wish we could have done it in person, but um, as I was explaining in the, the solo pod last week, this week has turned out to be absolutely crazy. And, um, but, um, I do highly recommend, you know, the book for the people, for people who actually want arguments, um, to explain how market-based solutions, um, are actually a better way to actually help poor people. Um, and not just poor people, but working people and, and, and immigrants and striving people and people who want, um, uh, to live in better, healthier communities. 
So with that, uh, thanks for listening. And um, I'll talk to you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast. 